Well, we are in the fourth week of our Sunday series titled The Gospel Story, where Sam, in both a compelling and passionate way, has launched us into this seven-week series, wanted us to see that the Bible from beginning to end has one main storyline running through it. It's as if an unbreakable scarlet ribbon runs from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, a story from beginning to end that reveals God's unfolding plan of redemption. You know, I, uh, I love epic stories. And when you think about it, every story, if it's a good one, has four parts. It has a beginning that sets the stage, telling you who the main characters are and how the story gets rolling. And something inevitably goes wrong. There's a conflict that makes the story interesting. The main part of the story tells how the conflict gets corrected or fixed, and that solution brings a final resolution. Writers call it the denouement, where the parts of the plot resolve themselves in a satisfying ending. They lived happily ever after. I love to sit down with my favorite snack and drink and be enthralled by a three-hour epic adventure. They're my favorite kind of movies. I think of the movie Gladiator with actor Russell Crowe as General Maximus Decimus Meridius. Once a renowned general, considered like a favored son to the emperor, a man of honor, respect, glory, and fame, who became an enemy of a wicked, jealous emperor, the former emperor's son, a wicked ruler who wanted Maximus dead, killed his family, attempted to kill him, who then became a slave, then a gladiator, who in the end died, defeating his enemy so that those he loved would be set free. I think of the movie Braveheart, where Mel Gibson played Scottish freedom fighter William Wallace, who could no longer subject himself to the rule of an evil, wicked, murderous king who viciously oppressed his people. Instead, he stood up, put everything on the line, even unto death, that his people would be set free. Do parts of either of those stories sound familiar in any way? Finally, I thought of the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy where Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee go on an epic quest to defeat evil. Frodo and Samwise put everything on the line, even their own lives, in an attempt to destroy the wicked Sauron and to see evil defeated once and for all. I love the scene where they finally made it to Mount Mordor, the realm of the wicked Sauron, and Frodo the ring bearer, the one who alone had a pure heart, the one who alone who could carry the weight of the burden, the one who took the brunt of the wicked one's assault in an attempt to stop his mission. And that scene, they're within 100 yards of their destination. The mission is almost complete. Frodo is spent and he can't go on. It's there that his trusted friend Samwise lifts him on his shoulders and says, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. He thrusts Frodo on his shoulders and begins the final trek to the fires of Mordor. After one final assault by the enemy, the ring is thrown into the fire, Sauron is crushed, his evil minions are destroyed, evil is forever abolished, all because of the sacrifice, pain, and suffering of one who carried the burden so that others wouldn't have to. Does that story sound familiar? And finally, in in one of the scenes of that movie, Return of the King, Aragorn is crowned king. Evil has been defeated, darkness is no more, beauty has been restored to the kingdom. The king takes his throne to great adulation. As he walks through the multitudes, every person bows in honor of the king. Four small hobbits now return from their perilous mission also bow, and King Aragorn looks at them and says, you bow to no one. The king and all his subjects kneel before Frodo and his friends, for they are the ones who earn salvation for one and all. Does that sound familiar? Every time I watch that scene, tears roll down my cheeks. It moves me to the depths of my soul, and I believe it's because it's a picture of the story of redemption that fills our Bibles. 
a picture of the culmination of the finished work of redemption and restoration achieved for us by Christ who paid it all. It's where we place our hope. It's what we long for in our hearts. It's what causes us to press on with perseverance in a wicked, evil world. And when we see in these things like movies like this, it moves us to tears. This is where Pastor Sam has been leading us on Sunday mornings. Through the epic story that started it all, the story from which all other epic stories are derived, the gospel story. Listen, I'm not saying that fictional writers, directors, and producers craft their stories by turning to the Bible. What I am saying is what King Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes when he said, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Each of us have been given an innate knowledge that we are made for something greater, for something more. There's a longing within us that even though my life has experienced pain and hardship and conflict and loss, I know deep down I was made for eternal bliss. There is a happily ever after, not in this life, but that is waiting for me in the life to come. This is the gospel story. Week one, Sam focused on creation, how the world began. The the very first phrase of Genesis 1 It states in the beginning, God, an eternal being who created all things perfectly without sin and declared that it was all good, who created man and woman in his image and his likeness so that they could be in relationship with each other and with him, a relationship of love and trust, a relationship from the beginning that was meant to be everlasting. Week two, he focused on the fall where something terribly goes wrong. A tempter shows up on the scene, one who in eternity past rebelled against God and his heavenly kingdom and was cast out. One who tempted the first man and woman to doubt God, to believe that God was holding out on them, and that if they would choose to pursue happiness and fulfillment apart from God, they could find it. Adam and Eve took the bait, sin and rebellion entered God's perfect world, and the world was cursed. And disease, decay, and death became a reality, as did evil and wickedness. And that helps us to see why the world is the way it is today. Week three, he focused on the promise that God in his love, grace, and mercy, he doesn't reject or turn his back on humanity because of their rebellion, but instead gives a promise first to Adam and Eve in the garden that one would come to crush the serpent's head, and then to a man named Abram, later named Abraham, in whom God promised that through his family line, a Messiah would come, a Savior who would make all things right. So here we are in week four, this week, where we're going to focus on the law. Next week will be Jesus, week six, the kingdom, and then week seven is forever. And after this final week seven, you will have traveled with us through the gospel story from beginning to end, what author Greg Keichel calls the story of reality. The story that explains how the world began, how the world ends, and everything deeply important that happens in between. This story is not a fairy tale, but rather is a story of which all fairy tales are really about. You know, if you think about it, whether it's these epic adventure stories that I just shared with you, or whether it's Cinderella or Snow White, or whether it's the Hallmark movies that my wife so much loves that I make fun of, they're all a picture of redemption and restoration and happily ever after. And that's why we're drawn to them. That's why we love them so much. The story that we're focusing on is a story of reality. It's an account or depiction or description of the way things really are. It started a long time ago and will probably end long after you and I are gone. And the four overarching elements is creation, tells us how things began. The fall describes the problem as to what has gone wrong. Redemption gives us a solution, the way to fix what has gone wrong. 
and restoration describes what the world will look like once the repairs are completed. Right now, we're kind of somewhere maybe not quite to the middle of the story, so let's jump back into it. And this week is we're focusing on the law. So to recap, to get us to where we are today, God creates a perfect world. The first humans are tempted. They reject God and rebel against him. The world is under a curse. Disease, decay, and death reign. So does wickedness and evil. God in his love gives a promise first to Adam and Eve and then to Abraham that through his line, a Messiah would come. Abraham and his family obey God and move to the place he would show them. The Hebrew people grow, multiply, and flourish in the land. And long story short, a famine overcomes the land, and the only place to find food is in Egypt. The entire family moves just outside and finds favor because of Joseph. The Israelites continue to flourish for many years. And then a new Pharaoh who replaces the last one because the Israelites are growing to be so numerous in fear and paranoia, believing they would rise up against him, he puts them all in slavery. And for more than 400 years, they are in captivity in Egypt. God raises up a man named Moses, who he would use to lead his people out of captivity. And God, through miraculous plagues, a Passover, a parting of the Red Sea, and a drowning of the entire Egyptian army, we pick it up in Exodus 19 and 20, where God in his presence in a cloud by day and fire by night is traveling with the Israelite people through the wilderness, leading his chosen people to the land that he had promised Abraham. He meets with Moses on Mount Sinai, where God gives him the law, also known as the Mosaic Law. The first five books of the Old Testament are called the Torah, which is the Hebrew word for law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the books of the Torah, and they contain more than 600 laws. These laws are divided into three categories. Civil laws, which was to govern their society, the the justice system of their day. Ceremonial laws, where once per year the Hebrew people would gather their sacrifices to make atonement for their sins, which included things like special feasts and celebrations. And then there were moral laws, laws on how to treat one another with love, honor, and respect. And in Exodus 20, we see that God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, where he inscribes them on stone tablets that he's to bring back to the Israelite people. And if you looked at those, what you would see is that the first four commandments are all about our relationship with God, how to honor him. And the final six are dealing with how you are to treat other people. All ten of these are about loving God and loving others. There are two important verses found in the law that reflect this, Deuteronomy 6.5, It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And Leviticus 19.18 says, do not seek revenge or bear grudge, but love your neighbor as yourself. And if you remember in Matthew 22, Jesus was asked a question by a Pharisee who was an expert in the law. He said, tell us what is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus responds by quoting the two verses that I just shared with you from the Old Testament law. The first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and prophets depend on these two commands. It's important to remember that God was calling out a people unto himself, a people that would be distinctly different from the pagan nations that they would encounter. Nations that worship false gods, who practice ritualistic temple prostitution as worship, who sacrifice their children in the fire and attempt to appease their gods, and practice all kinds of witchcraft and sorcery and every kind of perverted thing. 
If the Israelites follow the Mosaic law, God would protect them from such practices and bless them as a nation. So the question that you might want to ask is, what does the law have to do with the unfolding redemptive story of God? Well, I'm glad you asked. Turn in your Bibles to our main text this morning, Galatians chapter 3. Before we start reading there, let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we, um, we continue to come before you with praise and thanksgiving in our heart. And we're thankful that you, you say that we're two or three are gathered in your name, that you're there in their midst. So Lord, we acknowledge your presence with us this morning, that you are right here with us. And Lord, we acknowledge that you want to meet us right where we are. And Lord, I know that each of us have come in with different things that we've carried into the church this morning. Uh, hassles and stresses and frustrations and pressures, uh, struggles in our hearts and things that we're dealing with, uh, burdens that we're carrying, Lord, for ourselves and one another. And I pray that you'd help us, Lord, as, as your people, to, to bring all of those to you and allow you to carry those for us. Right now, Lord, help us to quiet our minds and hearts to, to truly hear from you and to understand what it is that you want to say to us in relationship to the message this morning. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go ahead in uh, Galatians chapter 3 and let's read verses 1 through 6. You foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? So then does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law, or is it by believing what you heard? Just like Abraham, who believed God and was credited to him for righteousness. Paul is asking a series of questions that are meant to challenge the believers of Galatia to think through what they are doing and believing. They seem to be confused and believing things that Paul says just aren't true. And he, in essence, he's asking a question, what are you doing? What are you thinking? I'm sure each of us could come up with a life experience where we or someone we know was asked that very same question. What are you doing? What, what, what were you thinking? I remember growing up, an older neighbor uh, several houses down owned a parachute. And we lived across from a church that had an open field where we played baseball, football, and soccer. And the perimeter of the property was lined by a creek. One windy day, this guy brings his parachute to the field to see if the kids that were hanging out playing sports wanted uh, to go for a ride. So two of my older siblings get harnessed in. My brother's probably seven or eight years old. My sister, maybe nine or ten And they are harnessed in, and the wind all of a sudden grabs that chute, and all of a sudden they're flying across the field just inches off the ground. My sister, in fear, bails, and just seconds later, my brother disappears right into the creek. Probably a 10-foot drop. We all go running over to see if he's okay. He comes up crying. He's unharmed, but he's in shock. He's soaking wet by creek water and covered in mud. He slowly walks to our house across the street, goes to our back door where my mom greets him, trying not to laugh, and asks, what were you thinking? 
Did you really think that was a good idea? That question confronts us as adults too, doesn't it? Many of us probably have a situation this year where someone asked, what were you thinking? Paul's questions to the Galatians are in regard to what they have come to believe concerning the law and its necessity for salvation. They had placed their faith in Christ, but because now some Judaizers, some false teachers were infiltrating their community, they were telling them that they must become Jews and follow the Mosaic law along with believing in Christ for salvation. They were listening and beginning to follow them. And in verse 6, Paul reminds them of their, their own Old Testament scriptures where he says, Abraham believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness. Paul's making the point that Abraham was not justified by his obedience to the law, but was a man of faith. A man who believed God at his word, believed in the promise that God would send a Messiah, that he was a sinner in need of a Savior. Let's go on and read verse 7 through 9. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Paul, in essence, is telling them, don't listen to these Judaizers who are teaching that Gentile believers had to become sons of Abraham to be saved trying to convince those in the Galatian church that true Jews did not need faith because they were born sons of Abraham by birth. And that's kind of like the belief that you can be born a Christian. But the scriptures declare that no one can be born a Christian. You must be born again a Christian. Every person must make an individual personal decision of faith in Christ. Christianity is not inherited. It's not passed on through our birth family or by our religious upbringing. Paul goes on and says, you're looking for a special blessing from God by keeping the law, but it doesn't come to you that way. God's blessing comes to you by faith. And the question has to be asked, does that sound too simple? I know people today who have said that to me. One of my family members years ago, when I was sharing with them about the finished work of Christ and that salvation was by faith alone, she said, I don't believe that. That's too simple. There has to be more to it than that. And I understand that perspective. We live in a world where you have to earn it. You have to perform for it to get what's valuable in life. You have to prove your worth. You have to carry your weight. No pain, no gain, right? It sounded too simple to the Galatians as the Judaizers were convincing them they had to work for their salvation. And this argument goes against everything that the Bible teaches us. There's no such thing as an Old Testament and a New Testament God. There wasn't one plan of redemption for Old Testament saints, which was law, and one for New Testament saints' grace, and it wasn't a combination of the two. God's plan of redemption since the fall has always been the same. It's been the same for all people, all places, and for all time. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which Chris read in the call to worship, says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And here is the beauty of the gospel story. No pain, no gain is absolutely true. Except it was God who suffered all the pain that we might gain eternal life. I say this all the time. Whenever you're down and you're doubting God's love, look to the cross. 
If you want to be convinced, whatever you're experiencing and you're going through hard times and you're thinking maybe God's forgotten about you, look to the cross. There it was proven once and for all that his love never changes for you. If he's willing to go through that on your behalf, he's right by your side trying to make a difference in whatever you're going through. What an amazing God who demonstrated such extraordinary love for you and I that he would do such a thing for us. We know that the Judaizers of Paul's day were wrong, but where did they go wrong? Their false assumption was that God made the law, the Mosaic Covenant, binding on the church, just like it was binding on Israel, but he didn't. God made the covenant of Moses with Israel, not the church. The church is under the covenant of grace, the new covenant, not the law. The new covenant is where God provides the means of salvation, and it is unconditional. He provided the way. He completed the finished work necessary. And he did it before one single person responded yes. Before one person had to clean themselves up first. Before one person had to get their act together first. Before anyone had to jump through religious hoops or do a bunch of penance or obey a bunch of laws. The only thing required is faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul writes in Romans 5.8, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the, and the very Jewish scriptures, they, they actually speak to this. In Jeremiah 31, 31 and 32, Jeremiah writes, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. The prophet Jeremiah makes it clear that in the future, After the Messiah comes and brings his redemption, there will be a new covenant, and you will no longer be living under the Mosaic covenant. Somehow they they missed it. It's both amazing and sad that Christian groups today get the same thing wrong. Salvation is not by grace alone through faith. Salvation is grace plus works. It's grace plus baptism. It's grace plus observing the ordinances of the church. Jesus plus something, in essence, is saying that Jesus is not enough. Paul speaks to what happens to people who refuse to accept Christ alone, who say, no, Christ is not enough. We have to keep some rules to be saved. Let's read verses 10 and 11. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. Now I want you to remember that this is the conclusion of a former Pharisee, a man who once devoted his life, every ounce of his existence, to law-keeping and to persecuting the Christian way who believed that salvation by grace in Jesus was a heresy. He persecuted and imprisoned those who believed this, and he believed that by doing this, he was actually honoring and serving and earning God's approval. This very same man, through an encounter with the risen Jesus, had his eyes open to the truth of the gospel, and now says boldly that all who rely on the law for salvation are cursed. No one will be justified before God by the law. So what does it mean when he says that they'll be cursed. Well, it means that they're still under God's judgment for their sins. They're still dead in their trespasses and sin. They're still separated from God apart from Christ. And no matter how good a life they try to live, this will never change. The curse will never be lifted. 
Do you want to know how the curse is lifted? Right here in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. All of us at one time had a curse pronounced over us because of the law. The law was never meant to lead to life. In verse 19, it says, why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise was made would come. So what Paul's saying there is that the law was given to actually expose our sin, to reveal how far short we fall from God's standard of perfection, to reveal how powerless we are to overcome sin and to save ourselves. And it was revealed to us that we needed a savior. That was the purpose of the law. The law was never meant to give life to anyone, but to actually show us how sinful we are. Before I gave my life to Christ, I thought I was a pretty good guy. A couple of weeks ago, you heard my story. You know, smoking cigarettes at the age of 13 and drinking at the age of 14 and pot at 15 and hard drugs at 16. And I was living a sexually promiscuous life and I had profane language and I was lustful and selfish and self-centered. And yet not only did I think I was a pretty good guy, but most of the people around me thought I was a pretty good guy. And I realized that before Christ came into my life, that all I did was really minimize and rationalize and justify my behavior. To me, it was like, it's no big deal. What's the big deal? Only after becoming a Christian did I begin to see my behavior and actions as wrong and was I convicted of my sin. Now I believe that all of us sin every single day, either through our thoughts, our attitudes, our words, our actions, our behavior. And if you think about it, I I did the math, one sin a day, 365 days a year times a day, if you lived 80 years, that's 29,200 sins. But if we were honest, and we would probably say that maybe we actually even sin multiple times each day, you're probably starting to get up to like 100,000 or more sins in a lifetime, and that's kind of overwhelming when you think about it. But it's not the number of sins that's the problem. I only shared that illustration with you to help you see that each of us have inherited a fallen sinful nature from our first parents in Adam and Eve. We all have a propensity within us to sin. The scriptures declare that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that no one does good, that all have gone astray each to their own way. But even if it was only one sin, if you could just say, I, one sin I remember in my life, that would be enough to still demand a blood sacrifice to pay for it. For even one sin separates you from a holy God. Can you see now why you could never do enough to pay for your sin? Why you could never follow enough laws to remove the curse for your sin? Why you needed another who was perfect to step in and pay for your sins in your place? Jesus Christ is the only one who redeems us from the curse that the law pronounces on us by becoming a curse for us. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, He made the one who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, God in human flesh, lived a perfect life, sinless, making him alone capable of making payment for sin. He was hung on a cross, made from a tree, taking the punishment that you and I deserved in our place. 
He became a curse so that we could be set free from the curse. What an amazing God. What an amazing Savior he is. In Galatians 3.14, Paul writes, the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. The blessing of Abraham has been passed on to every believer in Christ. He took the curse of your sin upon himself as he hung on a cross, and upon believing in him, he gave you his righteousness in your sin's place. A righteousness where God now sees you forever as forgiven, justified, accepted, approved, adopted, cherished, and beloved. You are no longer identified by your sin. As he looks upon you, you are identified with his son's righteousness, with the righteousness of Christ. It's not based on anything you did or could ever do, but it's based on what another did for you. Please get that. Please get that your identity is no longer about your sin. If you are in Christ, you are a beloved child of God. And there's nothing that can ever change that. There's nothing that you can ever do to, he will change his opinion on you. Let's go ahead and read uh, verses 15 through 18. Brothers and sisters, I'm using a human illustration. No one sets aside or makes additions to a validated human will. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. My point is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law... It is no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. That's a mouthful. What is Paul saying? Well, he's saying that when God makes a covenant, it is irrevocable. God made his promise to Abraham. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was a man of faith, not of the law. And after 430 years of captivity, the law came through Moses but know that the law is not a new way. The Mosaic law does not nullify the promise that was given to Abraham. So the Judaizers were thinking maybe the new covenant did not nullify the Mosaic covenant, so salvation must be a combination of both, grace plus law. And they were partly right, and then the Mosaic covenant was not nullified. It was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus, the God-man, through his perfect sinless life, through his death, his burial and resurrection, fulfilled all the requirements of the law, requirements that we could never fulfill. He did this for us, that through our faith in him, it would be as if we fulfill the requirements of the law ourselves. That's what it means by we've been imputed with his righteousness. From God's perspective, all the requirements of the law have been fulfilled because of our faith in Christ. All the feasts, all the celebrations and sacrifices of the Mosaic law could not gain salvation for anyone, but instead were types pointing to the one who would. Chris, you can come on up. 
Most of you probably remember that it was prophesied that the Messiah would have a forerunner, one who would prepare the way for his coming to the people of Israel. That forerunner was revealed in the Gospels as a man named John the Baptist. Upon seeing Jesus for the first time, this is what he said of him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I hope as we continue to travel through the gospel story that it's becoming clear that the Bible is not an accumulation of a bunch of separate stories where we derive good moral lessons for life or good examples of how to live or what the moral of the story is. We can absolutely find those things there and they can be learned and they can be applied to our lives. But what is most important to understand is that your Bible is one story from beginning to end, a story with one overarching theme, a story that has one unbreakable scarlet ribbon that runs from beginning to end, a story that points us to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Amen? Hallelujah. This is the gospel story. It's the story of reality. And what a beautiful, wondrous, glorious, life-transforming story it is. It's a story that changes lives. It's a story that has changed my life. It's a story that I know that has changed so many of your lives who are sitting here today. And it's the gospel story that we get the honor to bring to others with the hope that it'll change their lives as well. As I said last time on Up Here Communion Benediction, don't go home and say, wow, this is a story just for me. Embrace what the truths of those stories are. Embrace what God has done in your life. Embrace who he's called you and now who he identifies you as his precious child. But know that it goes much beyond that. It goes to us now taking that story and bring it to the lost and the hurting of the world who are separated from him and are still cursed and are still separated from God's love. Next week, we get to focus on Jesus, exclusively on him, and and I can't wait. I want each of you right now to quiet your mind and heart for a few minutes and spend some time one-on-one with God. And I want you to ask him one question, and then just quiet yourself and listen for an answer. Because he really now wants to meet with you one-on-one. And that question is, Heavenly Father, what is the one thing from the message today that you want me to make a part of my life that up to now has been lacking? Go ahead and spend that time with the Lord now. And then I'll come back up in a few minutes to close our time in prayer. And then we'll have communion and a benediction. Go ahead and spend that time with the Lord now.